Thank you, Jacob. If you have little ones you'd like them to be in graded Sunday school, they can be dismissed at this time. If you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here. And right there on the back of the chair, you'll find a QR code. Scan that. Let us know how we can minister to you, pray for you, answer questions. It be our joy to do that. And we'd love that you're here. And we're going to be in a continuing study. If you've been with us, you know we're in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy now, uh, chapter 4. So I'd like you to turn there if you would. We go verse by verse, exegetically, expositorily, just explaining the meaning of Scripture and applying that to our lives. That's what we do every Sunday, in, Sunday in, Sunday out. So we're, it's a joy to be in God's Word again today. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 of 1 Timothy 4. We've just started this section. It's a marvelous section and much there and some warnings that are connected to the church, just as relevant today as they were then. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Verse 2, By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Verse 3, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. Verse 5, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Let's stop right there. On September 21st, 1938, a hurricane of monstrous proportion struck the east coast of the United States. Max recorded sustained winds were 121 miles per hour at the coast, a maximum gust of 186 Peak storm surge was 17 feet above normal high tide in Rhode Island, and the peak wave height was 50 feet in Gloucester, Mass. About 700 people were killed. Approximately 53,000 people were homeless, and about 8,900 homes destroyed at a cost of $620 million, $1938. Interesting thing about that is, for some reason, the meteorologists who should have known what was coming and should have warned the public seemed blind to the impending disaster. They either ignored their instruments or simply couldn't believe them. And among some of the striking stories which later came to light was the experience of a Long Islander who had bought a barometer a few days earlier in a New York store. It arrived in the morning of September 21st, and to his annoyance, the needle pointed below 29 where the dial read hurricanes and tornadoes. And so he shook it, and he banged it against the wall, and the needle wouldn't budge. Indignant, he repacked it and drove to the post office and mailed it back, and while he was gone, his house blew away. It's interesting that uh, it's a significant lesson that we seem to have to repeat regularly. And here at the beginning of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul begins his section of the letter with some important warnings that he doesn't want the church to ignore. In fact, in verse 1, Paul warns this, and he says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. It's a warning to the church. It's just as relevant today as it was then. And we saw that Paul is really stating, and this is our first principle that we pulled from that passage, the Holy Spirit has warned us clearly numerous times that a major problem will dominate the future of the church. And it's always been a problem, and we've looked at that pretty extensively over the last several weeks, and you can catch up on that online if you'd like, but it's going to be a real problem for the church. And he says that this isn't a surprise because Jesus already talked about it, and the Holy Spirit made it clear all over the place that this was going to be the case, and it'll just get worse as we get closer to the end. And the first part of that warning is that some will fall away from the faith. And we saw that that falling away from the faith is nothing new, and the will fall away is one word from the Greek. It's a verb we get our word apostate from, and the Bible describes this as departing or falling away from a faith they knew. So an apostate is not someone who never knew anything about the gospel. Apostate is someone who previously affirmed the gospel and now does not affirm the gospel anymore. They might call themselves agnostics. They might say, well, I'm now an atheist, but the fact of the matter is the Bible calls them apostates. They understood the truth, they heard the truth, and then have now rejected it. And because the heart was never in it, because they never really knew God, they were able to be lured away. And then the next part says, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They don't realize that's what's happening, of course, and they wouldn't say that that's what's happening, and they would probably affirm that they're just as spiritual now as they were then. But the scripture says they are beginning to listen to what in reality are the seductive, insidious voices of demons behind false beliefs and false forms of religion and behind the dangerous attractions of the culture. 
And we can recognize that, and we looked at a lot of backup passages that help us understand from the Psalms and from uh, the Old Testament and from the New that it's not just from this passage, that all forms of false religion and false beliefs and idol worship and all those kinds of things that go on in which human is, uh, a human is saying them or modeling them, they all find their source in demons. And that's hard for us to hear in our modern, uh, sophisticated society, but it remains true nonetheless. And we too saw that the entire culture is the playground of demons. In fact, 1 John 5, 19, we looked at last time, uh, we know very clearly that we are of God. Those who are born again are of God. And the whole world, the whole unredeemed world, lies in the power of the evil one. And all that means is, is that Satan doesn't have to work in order to seduce the world. They're already his, and the world systems and the attractions are arranged in such a way that they seduce people. The lust of the flesh, that's sexual and physical attractions of the body and body image and immorality. And the lust of the eyes, which is covetousness and greed and a desire to attain or have something or dissatisfaction with what you have. And the boastful pride of life, which is the attraction of power and of prestige or education in order to enhance the status or standing, those things continue to attract the world. They're already Satan's. He doesn't have to work to keep them. The world is attracted and captured and deceived by these things or derivatives of those kinds of things. You can boil them all down to that. And they are already his, and they have to be delivered from those deceptive systems by the power of the gospel, which is the reason why the gospel has to go out. And it's a tremendous problem in the world. Uh, but the warning uh, Paul doesn't want Timothy and the church of Ephesus to ignore is, is that this can be a serious issue for the church. Satan and his angels, disguising themselves as angels of light, that we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, become the suppliers of religion. And so all false religion isn't someone stumbling around in the dark trying to reach up and find God. Uh, Romans tells us in Romans chapter 1 that once you've rejected the knowledge of the truth, you fall down into, the, into religions of men. That, you, that vacuum that was supposed to be inhabited by the Lord now doesn't stay empty long. You fall into false religions and all the, the things from the world are sucked in there, all those demon types of doctrines, and you follow them. And so say, uh, the, the Lord's pretty clear about how that all works. They, they're disguised, and they become these purveyors of religion and suppliers of false doctrine and foolish behavior, and they animate all that just enough to keep people coming back. But in contrast to what's propagated by demons, those who are, uh, know Christ as their Savior can claim John 16, 13, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He'll guide you into all what? All the truth. And so we have a source of objective truth. We're not at the whim of demons and demon doctrine. The Spirit leads you into all truth. These spirits lead you into all error. They seduce, they lure, they deceive, and they're powerful. And they are uh, the principalities and the powers against which the church has to wrestle. And they find their manifestation in false teachers who can fool the unsuspecting and undiscerning churchgoers into error. And of course, first, or John chapter 16, verse 13 says, the Spirit can reveal all of that. That's what's going on now. Paul writes a letter to a church in Ephesus through Timothy, and he's revealing through the Holy Spirit that this is actually the case, and you have to be discerning enough to be able to, to pick it up. And that's exactly what he says in the second part of, uh, second verse of 1 Timothy 4.2. Look there if you would. By means of, he says, the hypocrisy of liars. So demons are feeding humans these false religions, and humans are the ones who are propagating it then to people. And these guys, it says, are seared in their own consciences with the branding iron. Let's look at that. And that was principle number four from our passage. We not only know the source of all false teaching, which are demon teachings, but their mouthpiece is always human. So all this is done through human agents. Though the source is supernatural, the vehicle is natural. And so the deceit occurs on a human level. And Paul's carried along to say then that these men are hypocrites and they tell lies. That's the second part. He says, and, and that was principle number five for us from our passage, they look sincere, they look religious, they say the right things, but on the inside they are and do the opposite. They appear to be religious, they appear to be pastors or priests or religious leaders of one kind or another. They undoubtedly will look sincere, they're going to say the right things. I told you last time, they'll say everything correct about Christ, but at the end somehow it'll always be about man and God will be auxiliary to all of that. They'll look like they want to help people have a better life, be closer to God, uh, whatever. They may carry a Bible. They can say all the correct Christian things, but inside they're the opposite of that. It's a facade. 
It's the mask, they mask the demon face with a mask of religiosity. They look spiritual. They mask a demon voice with a voice of understanding and a voice of concern. And you have to listen very carefully to what they say. And you have to be able to discern the departure. And sometimes that's easy to do. And other times a little bit more difficult and it's a little bit more subtle. And then Paul warns that these men are, it says, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So he's identifying them fairly well. And you can understand that as you hear false teaching, you hear false doctrine. Those are demon doctrines, human face, and understand that they're hypocritical. So what looks like is going on on the outside is not going on on the inside. Where they're going to live, what they're actually doing, whether it's revealed to us in this time period or not. Because the Bible says some men's sins go along before them to judgment. And other men's sins what? come along afterwards to judgment. You don't always know for sure what's going on, but we know for sure inside that it is the hypocrisy of liars, and then we know that they're seared in their own conscience with a branding iron. And, and that seems to be the way that this happens so easily. When you hear the false teaching and you hear what's going on and you see it going on, it may seem to you like, what, how could they possibly say that? But the Bible says they pull this off in a very genuine and believable manner, and that was principle number six from our passage. They've spoken demon deception, here it is, for so long, their conscience no longer responds or feels anything. There's no sensitivity to the truth. And they teach false things, and they truly believe what they say. And that's because of the conscience. And you know this because we've studied it, but the conscience is the part of us God has given to us that is there to affirm or condemn an action. It's kind of independent. It's the conversation you have with yourself. And it responds to the highest moral teaching. And so the Lord gives you a conscience, and if it's rightly informed by the Word of God and truth, then it's going to work like it's supposed to. But if it's not rightly informed, it's going to begin to not work. But these false things and these, uh, that they say, and they truly believe what they say, is because of the conscience. And these teachers have a conscience that's been scarred to the point where they can carry on that lie, they can carry on that deception, their hypocrisy, and they seem to have no regrets, and they don't seem to have any shame. They've spoken demon ideas and demon deception so many times their conscience has been seared like with an iron. So there's no reaction then anymore. Their sensitivity to right and wrong, their sensitivity to truth and integrity, it's been scarred beyond function. So that's how they can do it so easily. So they stand in the pulpit and they pass off things that are not true and they never even have a problem with it. Apostates who either won't take a stand because of the hermeneutic of humility. In other words, I couldn't possibly pretend to think I'm right or you're wrong. Or they're apostate because they've thrown out sound doctrine and good biblical study habits in order to push an agenda or push a reputation. And Paul says, these are just lies of demons. And for whatever reason and, and motivation that the humans got into it, they've just been deceived and lured away from what they once affirmed to be true. And what are some of those lies of de demons? Look at verse 3. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. This is where we ended last time. We just made a very brief observation, which we'll get into that today now and uh, understand this passage. But the simple understanding is this. They had two things here in the church they were communicating to people. Remember, these are men, and they're communicating what? Demon deception. Okay, so keep it clear that regardless of how you may feel about it at first blush, as you look at the passage, you might think, are these that big a deal? Understand that these are, Paul says, demon deception. The demons whispered and the men spoke and said, if you want to be spiritual and you want to know God and show you possess salvation, number one, you shouldn't get married. Number two, you have to abstain from certain foods. That's still, that's still out there, beloved. If you just look online, you can find God's diet, Eden's diet, you know, all that stuff, right? Um, all you got to do is just look and you'll see that this is the way to spirituality, this is the way to commune with God better. All of that's still there and all demon teaching. But it's easy to think it doesn't seem so bad, does it? I mean, being single doesn't seem like a big deal. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7, honor singleness. And if you don't want to eat, isn't that fine? I mean, there's a place for fasting, there's a place for diet. That's not a big deal, right? But that's not the point. And this is, this is principle number seven concerning false teaching and false teachers. It's going to include the religion of human achievement in which you become saved or spiritual either by things you do or things you don't do. That's the point. And unfortunately, ascetic teaching fell on fertile ground in the apostolic church. It still falls on fertile ground today because there's always the tendency to drift towards self-denial in order to appear spiritual. 
So let's look at some of the background here and get a little handle on why it's there and why we still see it. Because this kind of externalism is typical of all satanic false religions. Paul says it's all doctrines of demons. And it doesn't really matter what it is. And as we said over and over again, it doesn't matter. Uh, demons don't care what you believe as long as you don't believe the truth. And they are perfectly fine with you believing something ridiculous. In fact, all of it, in comparison to truth, is ridiculous. And they must get a, a good hearty laugh out of it behind their hand as they watch humans by the thousands and tens of thousands flock to false teaching. And here's the thing. You can go from tribal people living in the Stone Age, as, you, as it were, who have animistic worship and believe they mollify whatever gods they worship by piercing themselves or, or by pulling out all their hair. And I just went through and just saw some of those things that false religions do or, or self-flagellation or finger amputation or burning incense or fire walking or, or uh, self-immolation. And you can have all that in these, in these very remote, very uh, unsophisticated uh, places where people live. Or you can move from simple tribal people all the way to the sophistication and pageantry and wealth of the Roman Catholic Church that teaches true spirituality and holiness is gained by those who abstain from marriage and who abstain from meat on Friday and knee walk and, and celibacy of the priesthood and celibacy of nuns and the covenants. See, they're all the same. It doesn't really matter whether it's unsophisticated out somewhere in a tribe or it's very sophisticated and wealthy and pageantry and all of that. It's still teaching demon doctrine. Because, beloved market, no spiritual standing, no salvation is in any way, shape, or form dependent on what you do or don't do physically. You need to understand that. That was the reason why the passage right before this one went through the hymn of the church. That our, our salvation and our holiness is based only on the work of Christ. And so what you accept or deny yourself in terms of those kinds of things we're talking about make no difference in salvation or spiritual standing. These things are given by God for the enjoyment of men, which we're going to see in just a minute. Uh, Leland Riken wrote a book called Worldly Saints, and I'm going to read you an excerpt from it because it was very beneficial to me. He says this, The dominant attitude of the Catholic Church throughout the Middle Ages was that sexual love itself was evil and did not cease to be so if its object were one's spouse. The early church fathers, Tertullian and Ambrose, believed that the extinction of the human race, mark this, was to be preferred to the sexual relationship within marriage. And Ambrose wrote that married people ought to blush at the state in which they're living. Augustine, another church father, argued that sexual relationship was innocent in marriage, but the passion that accompanies it is always sinful. And he frequently counseled married couples to abstain. Albertus and Aquinas objected to marital intimacy because it subordinates the reason to passions. So it's all over in the early church. And he goes on to say this, quote, the church fathers are virtually unanimous in praising virginity as superior to marriage. This culminated in the Council of Trent in the 16th century, which denounced those who denied that virginity was superior to the married state. The Roman church kept adding days in which marital intimacy was prohibited until more than half the days of the year were excluded. And I put, no wonder there was a reformation. And he says, Puritans, quote, to the rescue, seriously, the change did, did come through the reformation with, with its return to the Bible and a focus on what it's taught. And mark this, the great heroes here were the Puritans. Yes, the Puritans. They took on the Roman church in a straight-on debate. In fact, portions of 1 Timothy 3 and 4 were key texts in that argument. Riken continues, he says, Puritan doctrine of sex was a watershed on the cultural history of the West. The Puritans devalued celibacy, glorified companionate marriage, affirmed marriage sexual relationship as both necessary and pure, and established the ideal of wedded romantic love and exalted the role of the wife. Now, people will say, that's the end of that section I want to read to you. People say this, What? Isn't the word puritanical a synonym for repression and grim asceticism? Isn't that in, not at all? In fact, C.S. Lewis comments on that in, uh, in, uh, as he portrayed the devil's screw tape. And screw tape says this, as boasting his, to his understudy Wormwood regarding the redefining of puritanism. Screw tape says, uh, quote, and may I remark in passing that the value we have given to that word is really one of the solid triumphs in the last hundred years. So they changed, in other words, they changed the understanding of what Puritan meant to something bad. He said that was a great victory. So how deceived Christians uh, who, are, uh, who trade in their standing in Christ for ascetic pursuits, how deceived are they? 
There are, of course, people who, according to both Jesus and Paul, are called to remain single. It's a gift the Lord gives to people. We also know that fasting is sometimes appropriate. That's understood. But the scriptures are clear that celibacy and vegetarianism are not God's general will for his people. Let me say that again. The scriptures are clear that celibacy and vegetarianism are not God's general will for his people. Those who forbid marriage and certain foods, thinking this makes them pleasing to God and holy, are guilty of serious error and have missed uh, the meaning of the passage and the warning that Paul gives here. And, and let's throw this in. The Daniel diet. I don't know how many times I've had to demote the Daniel diet. People will say, well, the Daniel diet was vegetables and water, and Daniel was, looked better than everybody who was around him. I think you're missing a key point of that entire passage. The point was that that was a miracle, okay? That was a miracle. That Daniel ate vegetables and water and ended up looking better than those who ate the king's food was, was a miracle that the Lord was sustaining Daniel. It wasn't a model for eating, okay? <laughs> We've missed that whole thing and turned it around and made it self-serving and thinking somehow, okay, this is, the, this is what we're supposed to do. That isn't what we're supposed to do. But this is exactly what fits into this understanding of the deception that comes along with all of this. So it's a mess. It's still a mess. It has been a mess. In fact, that was Paul's point. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, will you? Verse 16. Colossians 2, 16 in your Bible. I'll give you just a second to get there. <clears throat> I want you to read along with me. I think it's very informative for us and instructional. And if, if, you, if you read a paper Bible, you can make some notes. If you're in digital Bible, you can still uh, write some notes in there just as it connects to this. It's a very, a very uh, parallel to what we're looking at right now. In another church, of course, uh, Church of Colossae instead of Church at Ephesus. But Paul writes this, and he says, verse 16, we won't read the whole thing. You have to go back and, and, and kind of fill in the gaps on your own time. But he says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things, verse 17, which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So all those things pointed towards Christ. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause in his fleshly mind. All these kinds of things which are part of false religion and false worship, worshiping angels, thinking you saw a vision, all those kinds of things, and not holding fast to the head from which whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Who's the head? That's Christ. That's the whole reason why First Timothy chapter 3, last two verses had to do with Christ being the head. He is, that is where we get our holiness, that in him and him alone. Verse 20, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, in other words, you couldn't get saved by those kinds of things. You couldn't get saved by restricting yourself or doing some certain thing. If you died to those things when you died to Christ, why, as if you're living in the world, in other words, you're going back to where you used to be, thinking you somehow had to appease some God, you didn't know how you were going to appease him, from a tribe in the jungle to the Catholic Church, whatever it was, thinking that's how you're going to appease God. If, why do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, verse 21, do not taste and do not touch, verse 22, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. All those kinds of things, all the food and all that is going to perish in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. So you're doing what men do again. Why would you think you're going to be holy as a result of that? That's the whole point of the passage. These matters, now mark this, which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement, so in other words, saying no to certain things, and severe treatment of the body, flagellation and cutting off fingers and emulation, all the kinds of things we talked about, walking on your knees and, and all that stuff, not having meat on a certain day and making sure you keep certain things holy or whatever. See, they, they look like they're holy, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They don't do what they claim to do. So those things don't make you holy. All those things are shadows, but the reality is Jesus. So he says, don't let anyone tie you up on don't touch and don't taste, all that ascetic approach to life, because it's worthless, because you're complete in Christ. Now again, as we said before, it doesn't release you to do what Jesus has said not to do, and I just say that as a caveat so you understand the small print. 
Just because you're not tied to those kinds of ascetic types of denials or including inclusions, it doesn't mean you get to do what Jesus said not to do. It doesn't release you not to do things Jesus said to do. Because, beloved, obedience is the activity of the redeemed, not the way to redemption. Obedience is the activity of the redeemed. You do what the Lord says. You don't do what he says not to do. That's the activity of the redeemed, not the way to redemption. You show that you're born again by your obedience to the Word of God. But Paul's dealing here with a self-denial on this physical level that was the supposed means of true sanctity and true holiness. And beyond all of this, just to give you some more context, historically, the Essenes believed this. And the Essenes, if you're not familiar with that, they were a Jewish sect that appeared in Palestine as early as 166 B.C., about there, and living in a community down by the Dead Sea, very likely were involved in the writing of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, those scrolls were found adjacent to their community. They lived in ascetic lifestyle. They were reported by Josephus to reject pleasure as evil, but esteem self-restraint as a virtue and to neglect marriage. So they denied themselves as many things as they could because they thought that made them more holy. All the Essenes except one group never married, and of course they died out. And of course, never marrying is one way to put an end to your movement. Also behind that, undoubtedly, was a Greek influence where they regarded the human body and its functions as evil. And they taught that the the godly must live above the physical. And these ideas have been around for ages, so they no doubt played a role. And it's it's certainly possible, as you think about this, and certainly think about Ephesus, um, that these tendencies were further fueled by the teaching of some false teachers at Ephesus, which is the precise reason why this is being written. As an example... Some taught that the resurrection for believers had already occurred. And I'm going to read this in just a moment. You can look there. 2 Timothy 2. Look at 2 Timothy 2, if you would. And this is the only other place I'll have you turn today. Some taught the resurrection of believers had already occurred. But remember, that's all demon teaching. And much like the Colossians passage, look at 2 Timothy 2.14. As uh, Paul is teaching Timothy again in the letter... And he tells them, tells Timothy some things to make sure that the, he teaches the church. He says, remind him of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. So it's kind of listen, like listening to one side of a phone conversation. If you think about it, you can figure out probably what got said. Obviously, there's a lot of discussions going on uh, during the teaching time. Everybody had an opinion. Everybody had a position. They want to make sure that they piggybacked on top. In piggybacking on what you just said, I want to say such and such. Uh, Paul says, listen, you're wrangling about words. It's useless. It leads to the ruin of the hearers. Verse 15, be diligent to present yourself to prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Instead of imagining that you have a position, instead of imagining you need to make sure you say something in the meeting, make sure you know what the word of God says. You want to avoid shame? Know what the word of God says. You'll know how to conduct yourself in the household of faith, and you'll know what you should say and shouldn't say. And verse 16 says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. So just like we saw in Colossians, don't go back to what men say. The philosophies of men, they're useless. That's what the world holds on to. There's no power in any of those things. For it'll lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. So it's not just there, it kind of spreads out in the church. Paul says to Timothy, tell them not to do it. Among them, here it is, are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Men who have gone astray, and what was, the, what was the source? Demons. They've gone astray from the truth, so what's their source? Demons. Saying that, mark it, the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord will abstain from wickedness. So when they come together, let's just sum this up. Everybody had a position. Everybody wanted to talk about their opinion. Paul says that leads to the ruin of the hearers. And Hymenaeus and Philetus, which is going to refer to what we just got through talking about just a minute ago, argued that the only resurrection was Jesus' resurrection. That's the position that they held. The resurrection then had already taken place in Jesus. And so what they would teach is this. Our identification with his resurrection was the only one that believers would experience. And that sounds like demon doctrine, doesn't it? Because it takes away the joy and the hope of the physical bodily resurrection the body the Bible teaches so clearly. And so if we were already spiritually resurrected because of Jesus, now this makes sense. Both marriage 
And the eating of certain foods were considered part of the old order because now you're raised in Christ. We are raised in Christ. Romans 6 says we are spiritually raised in Christ, but there's going to be a bodily resurrection too. But if the only resurrection we get is the resurrection of Jesus, then certain foods and, and marriage and all that's part of the old order, the order of things that they believed had passed away with the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and therefore to be avoided. And the asceticism alluded to in Colossians 2, 16 through 23, which we just read, bears a striking resemblance, especially where foods are concerned. It's also possible that this believer, uh, this behavior rather, reflected the attempt to enact the life of resurrection paradise right here on earth by following the model given in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall into sin. So what would that mean? I mean, after all, Jesus taught there'd be no marriage in the resurrection, right? Matthew 22, verse 30. And vegetarianism seemed to be uh, the rule in Eden and in paradise before the fall. And so the negative view of marriage seems quite similar to the sentiments held by some in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7, Paul says, come together. You don't belong to, to yourself. You belong to the other person. And don't abstain unless it's by, means, it's by reason for, for prayer and fasting and then come back together so you're not tempted. See, so it's all over the place. People think that this is connected to this old order. In any case, whether to cope with the evil material world or to implement a new theology, the heretics enforced a regiment of denial. And, and what did Paul have to do with Hymenaeus and Philetus? Do you remember? After he approached them and showed them they were teaching false doctrine, what does it say he did? He put them out of the church. It's spreading like gangrene. You can't continue to do this. It, it uh, undermines the faith of people. It's demon teaching. You can't stay and do it. So it's an important thing. So regardless of the background or the reason, Paul still calls all this deception a deception of demons. And so their teaching here will always be the same. It'll be that man achieves spirituality by his own efforts. And he had to put Hymenaeus and Philetus out of the church because he wouldn't stop teaching that kind of heresy. Now, let's look at verses, let's look at verses three, 3 through 5, if you would, and we'll move on to this uh, next section. Because now the answer back is going to be here. Why do you not hold on to that? He just got through doing the church hymn that in Christ all our holiness is found. We hold on to him. And then he says, listen, and don't deny these other things. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Look at verse 3. Which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. Look at verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. For, verse 5, it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Now, very simply, the answer to all this foolishness, Paul says, is what? Creation's goodness. I like this, because I don't know if you remember, when we went through John 19, we were talking about a divorce and remarriage, and uh, they were saying to Jesus, you know, you can put your wife away for any and every reason, and Jesus gave the rules. You can't do that. You can't divorce. God hates divorce. But he says, but what did God do in the garden? And I like this because he, push, he does the same thing again. I said, he, he pushes back to the beginning. What, what's, what thing should we remember? Why, why is this wrong? Well, because we're denying creation's goodness. The answer rests on our understanding and our affirmation of the intrinsic goodness of everything created by God. So the antidote then to all of this foolishness is that we have to embrace God's own verdict as he stated it at the end of Genesis 1. God saw all that he had made and it was what? Very good. It's important to remember that God created marriage. God made marriage. God took Adam and gave him a wife and they were married, right? In fact, Peter calls marriage in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 the grace of life. One of the best things life offers to you. It's also important to remember that God made all foods. In fact, when God made everything, he stood back in Genesis and he looked at it and he said, what? It's good. It's good. So the question then Paul's asking the church through Timothy is, how can you deny men what God has created to be received with thanksgiving by them who believe and know the truth? That's the question. How can you be doing this? You've forgotten the intrinsic goodness of God's creation. And in reference to food, Jesus himself declared that all foods are clean. Mark chapter 7, verse 19 and 20. Right? In fact, uh, that was pounded into Peter's stubborn awareness through a vision in which a sheet containing all of earth's meat was lowered to him. Three times to make sure he understood. It was perfectly fine for him to eat it. And he wasn't to call anything God had made unclean. Do you remember this? It's hard for Peter to understand this. Very stubborn. Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. 
And that's the point of this statement then, when he says, which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. So here's the thing. Is it just for believers? No. God made all this for everybody, but it's primarily for believers. God designed marriage for all men. God designed food for all men, but especially for believers. Do you know why God made everything? You know why God made marriage? The same way, reason why he made everything else. For his own what? Glory. For his own glory. He made marriage. He made food. He made everything for his own glory. All the food belongs to God too, right? Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. That takes up everything, doesn't it? Everything on the earth belongs to God and everybody on the earth belongs to God. And that would include food, you know. I mean, God could have, if you think about this, I've told you this before about flowers and other things that are just aesthetic, but God could have just given us plain gray paste to eat and that would have been for everybody forever. And you wouldn't have known any different. But that's not what he did, was it? Instead, there's this wonderfully almost infinite number of combinations and tastes uh, that vary from around the world. It's amazing. And why do we have all that? Because that's all God's doing. We have it though so that what? He can be glorified. That's why we have all of that. And and it's true that the unredeemed world eats the food and, and the unredeemed world enjoys the marriage and the world never even considers the one who gave it, right? They never say thank you. They are not grateful. In fact, Romans 1 says that's one of the trademarks of the unredeemed, that they're not grateful and they don't acknowledge God's uh, sovereignty over the world. They don't say thanks. So in the truest sense then, if you think about this passage, marriage and food and every good thing God made, according to Paul, he made primarily for those who believe and know the truth. Why? Well, because they were all made for his glory, and only the people who fulfill the purpose of giving him glory are the ones that really know why all of it was made and given. See? You've got it all. You've got the whole circle now. It's not just accidentally the universe needed to have the earth, and so we got it, as, as most, uh, most uh, agnostics will say now, or, or atheists. No, the Lord made it all, and he made it all good, and he made it for people who believe and know the truth, so that he can receive what? Glory for all that he's done. So only people who fulfill that purpose in, in, in the reality, although the world gets the benefit of all these things, are the ones that give him glory because they know why all it was made and all of it was given. So then that's the essence then of verse 4. He says this, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. That's the essence of it. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected or to receive with gratitude. So the implications of gratitude go beyond uh, eating to all of life, right? Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the old preacher, said this. He, he wrote this. He said, you say grace before meals, okay, but I say grace before the play and before the opera and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching and painting and swimming and fencing and boxing and walking and playing and dancing and grace before I dip the pen in the ink, We're the ones who thank God for our marriages. We're the ones who thank God for food. Do you ever do this? I I would encourage you to next time you're in the store. Instead of looking at the crowds of people trying to check out, thank him for the abundance. Do you ever do that? Look around the store and realize in communism, the people wait for the food. But in capitalism, the food waits for the people. And you walk in there and you look at the abundance before you think, man, it's going to take me forever to get out of here. There's a million people in here. Realize that there's so much food and so much abundance. It's just amazing, right? Many of you are farmers. Many of you are, are cattlemen. You know this. The abundance that the Lord's provided to us. And that's a way to give thanks to Him and honor Him. That, that shows you believe and know the truth. That all these things are available to us. And it, it appears almost infinite supply. So that's the truest sense of it, see? We thank God when we go to the grocery store and we see the abundance of food. The redeemed are to be the ones that show our gratitude. We thank the Lord for our marriage. We thank Him for our family. Late at night, it's a good thing to do, men, when you wake up. Thank the Lord for the abundant blessing that He's given you. If He's given you a wife and a family, you are so rich in that alone. Not to mention the other ways that He's blessed you and provided for you. Just in that alone, give give the Lord thanks. That shows you believe and know the truth. You understand those things are good gifts from the Lord. So the redeemed are the ones to show gratitude. And so in the, in the truest, purest, highest sense, everything God ever made, he made for those who believe and know the truth. And that's a wonderful statement, isn't it? To know when you came to faith, 
you got the full picture for the first time in your life. And the world, yes, they, they, they get it. You know, the rain falls on the just and the what? The unjust. That's what Matthew 5.45 says. Be kind to your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The unredeemed benefit from marriage. They get the grace of life even though they don't give the Lord thanks. They benefit from food even though they don't give glory for him for it now. He'll still get glory though. Someday every knee's going to bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all those things will hit them like a huge ton of bricks. In fact, I truly believe in, in the judgment, the great white throne judgment. Part of the judgment on people was how much they enjoyed everything God gave and never gave them a minute's thanks for it. It'll be painfully obvious to them at that point that everything that was here was made by the Lord. And we should have recognized that and given him thanks. Instead, we were deceived. We rejected the knowledge of the true God. We fell into false worship and we were deceived by demons. And all, all of our life we're thinking this accidentally showed up here. It's so nice and works perfectly just like it's supposed to. But this is just by accident. I'm going to enjoy it. The Lord's going to make it pretty clear that it's not how it is. And they're going to, for the first time in their life, understand that whole thing in entirety. And whether they want to or not, fall on their knees and worship for everything that he's made. He gave all of it for his own glory, and he's going to use it to judge the wicked. But Paul says, believers give that back to him now, the thankfulness. And so part of the richness of enjoying all these things is rejoicing in the good things God has made and rejoicing in him as the giver of it all. See, Not just, thank you, Lord, for for this beautiful marriage and then thinking about the marriage that you have or, or the children or the blessings on your life, but also thanking him personally for being so personable and so much attention to detail that there's nothing that's in your life that's so small that he's not concerned about and nothing so big that his sovereignty can't solve. And so we thank him personally for that because he's good. And Paul, as he phrases, this makes it look so ridiculous for men to come along and deny marriage and deny certain foods and think it makes them holy by abstaining from them. What they're really doing, Paul says, is denying God the right to be glorified for the beauty of what he gave us. Your holiness is found in Christ. So marry and eat everything he's provided and praise him. And that's the way we should approach all of life. And certainly there are times for self-denial and there are times for discipline. If God has said not to do it, we don't do it. Because the activity of the redeemed is obedience, isn't it? The activity of the redeemed is obedience. So we don't do what God says not to do. And that's not a restriction somehow on our freedom. That's showing that we are born again. Because he says this, for everything created by God is good. In other words, uh, the, this statement, for everything created by God is good and nothing rejected if it's received with gratitude. Uh, and it's even more broad in case you're thinking of abstaining from something else. He's just talking about marriage and food here, but everything created by God is good. And we're to be grateful for creation's goodness in heaven and earth, the stars and the flowers, like Chesterton said a minute ago. I mean, whatever it is that is, is part of my life, I can be grateful for that. And the vegetables and the animals and the sea and the rivers and the fish and the forest and the genders and marriage and sex and family and meat. It's all God's. He made it all. And what I really like here, it says, for everything created by God is good. That's our word we've looked at before. As we talk about a man leading his family in a godly manner, it was good. You remember, not just is it obedient and it's right and it's disciplined, but it's also, what was the other part of that word, kalos? It's beautiful. It has that word beauty into it. It's like when you read a book and you love the, art, the, the writer's ability to craft words, but the whole story itself is also beautiful. That's the combination here. Not only is it good in that what God made is well-designed and pleasing and does what it's supposed to do, not only does it, even in the midst of a cursed world of sin, it still does pretty much what it's supposed to do. You go on vacation, you enjoy some beautiful place, realize even in the curse of sin, it still pretty much fulfills everything it was supposed to do underneath the groaning that it has. And so that's just so lovely to think about, but it's not only is it well-designed and pleasing, not only does it far surpass its intended purpose, but it has inherent in the word a beauty connected to it. To enjoy the food God's created, to enjoy the marriage God's gives, to, to see people giving thanks for those things, enjoying them in the fullest, that's beautiful. That's the idea. That's beautiful. And nothing's to be rejected, it says, if it's received with gratitude. 
take it and give God thanks. Let's look at that last part of verse 5. Why is it okay to participate in everything God's made, which he hasn't said no to, okay? It just says this, for it is, it just refers to anything God has made that ascetics are thinking about rejecting and abstaining from, all right? There's, there's no limit to that. And so he just says everything is made, uh, everything by God. It just derails the whole movement with that, those words. All this demon teaching, all those things they're telling you to abstain from, that God's created has been, here it is, sanctified. In other words, it's been set apart as holy. It's been made clean. It has been cleansed. And that's what that means. It's the opposite of the word that we find in Greek, common. It's not common. It's sanctified. It's clean. How is it cleaned? By means of the word of God. I'll stop right there. And I love this. Okay, this is very important. Catch this. The first part always refers to the message of salvation. So when it says, by means of the word of God, through the message of salvation, catch this, and we've already alluded to this several times, when you came to faith, you had this complete knowledge, but through the message of salvation, we've come to know the Lord, and we've come to know the truth in Christ. And specifically here, we've come to know that Christ has abolished all food laws and all dietary laws. He made them clean on the cross. He affirmed marriage. It was the first place that he went and did a miracle. Okay? Understand, when Christ came, he made this clear. The gospel has ended all those dietary restrictions. Well, why were they there? Okay, they were given for only a brief time in Israel's history to develop their ability to discern and to obey. To help them understand the truth of separation from the nations that came before them. They were never evil in and of themselves. But once Christ came, they were able to be set aside. They had a limited national purpose. They had a time stamp on them. Used by this date. Otherwise, no longer. Very important to understand. Everything God's made is what? So they were never intrinsically bad. They were just given to restrict Israel for a short time. For the reasons we've just given. But they were never bad in and of themselves. So the word of God then, and here's the second part, prayer. So if we understand that, if, and if in prayer we offer thanks to God, then we can receive any and all of his good gifts. And what giving thanks does, and I think you understand this already, what giving thanks does, it sets our food and our activities, whatever they are, in their true perspective as God's good creation and his gift to us. That's what happens when you submit yourself in prayer to God. You come under him and say, it's true, Lord, all these things are from you. And you acknowledge that verbally. So it's sanctified by the means of the word of God, all of it, whatever it is, sanctified by means of the word of God, that we understand the reason why Jesus came and what happened on the cross and when he was resurrected, and then prayer. So to answer asceticism then, as we wrap up, it's not mere reception of those things. It's reception with thankful prayer to God as the giver of good gifts. And Jesus consistently blessed God before his meals. He offered thanks afterwards. We see that over and over in the Gospels. Paul likewise gave thanks for a meal on a ship in the middle of a storm in the Adriatic when everybody's throwing up and they've thrown everything out of the ship. And he gives God thanks. He says, take something to eat. God gave this to us. In the midst of the difficulty, we give God thanks for what he's provided. You see? And so, mandatory celibacy, abstinence from certain foods, whatever it is, somehow making yourself right with God by these things is all demon teaching because it denies God's creation. It denies God's desire for thanks and praise. It denies God's word revealed in the gospel of Christ, which sets aside all those restrictions. So Paul corrects all of this in this letter. He makes it clear why he had to put out Hymenaeus and Philetus. He gives them a warning, and he doesn't want them to ignore it. Here it is. On the, it's on the horizon. It's already in the church. It's going to get worse as the church gets closer to the rapture. Be aware of it. Don't ignore it. Understand it's going to be there. It's going to cause disaster if you don't think about it. He doesn't want them to listen to lies, thinking they can please God by a show of the flesh like the Pharisees did. They just ended up being severely displeasing to God by following the lies of demons, and so will the church. That's not where the Lord wants us. Let's be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. Thank you for your attention and time in the Word. Let's give the Lord thanks. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your Word. We thank you for these first five verses here of chapter 4, which really set out a marvelous 
statement for us. First of all, reminding us there's nothing we can do or not do in the flesh that's somehow going to make us holy. That's hard to hear because it's easy to drift over to works, doing things so we think we're holy or you'll think we're holy or somebody else will. We're holy in Christ. And obedience is found as the activity of the righteous. And we thank you for that, that clear teaching. But still, demon teaching makes its way into the church. It makes its way into false religious practices, foolishness, thinking we can do things that you put an end to, whatever it is. Father, I pray that you will help us be clear. Many of us have relatives and loved ones who are captured by this type of demon teaching. They don't know that they're captured. They think they're spiritual. They understand what they think they understand because now they think they have the whole story or that they have uh, now really understood things, and, but they've really rejected what they formally affirmed, and you call that apostate. It's a tough place to come back from, but you're a big God and able to do things that we can't do. And so we pray if we have those who we love who are walking in apostasy, walking in demon teaching, who've been deceived by the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, Lord, I pray that you'll deliver them from that trap. Only you can take off the veil that's on their eyes. And I pray that you'll do that. It's our heart's cry. Many of us uh, are sorrowful about those we love because they're so far from you. And they think they believe the truth, but they believe the lie. Father, give us wisdom to pray as we should, as we know how that all worked, and we can pray that you can deliver them from these things. And Father, our prayer, though, not just for those close to us, those who are leaders and authority, as Jacob prayed earlier, those people are deceived too. And so we pray for light. We pray for the gospel to come and deliver from those things. All men everywhere. The church may dwell in tranquility and in peace and with a good testimony in the community. All this is about your gospel. The church living as they should, the church embracing sound doctrine, uh, reading from the word in its context and studying it and doing it. What does that say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? Living that way, loving you with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, and giving out the gospel. This makes the church look alive. It, it appears as it really is, doing what it's supposed to do. I pray we'll be a church like that. I pray you'll raise up churches all around our country and around the world that are doing just that moving away from falseness, moving away from the teachings of men, from entertainment church, instead to instructional discipleship types of church meetings. Run according to what your word says so that people can grow and be equipped for good works and come up to the maturity even of a reprint of Jesus himself. So our prayer today, we cry out to you for these things. We thank you for the, the blessings of our life. We thank even now, quietly, in our own heart. We thank you for our marriage, if you've given it. We thank you for the richness of life and the ministry you've given to us amongst people, if you've given that. We thank you for children, if you've given them to us. We thank you for our salvation and for the bounty of all that we have. And when we walk out into the world and into a, a grocery store or a shopping center, we're so grateful that you've provided so much bounty. It's all from you. We thank you for the gift, and we thank you that you're a giver of good things. And that's your nature. And so, Father, on that praise note, we give you praise. And we thank you today. And we thank you for Jesus, whom we long to see. It's in his name we pray and for his sake. And all God's people said, amen.